Um, I think he was uh, more than just a player to some. He was a superhero in a sense. This lack of hitting is, has reached a point that it's kind of ridiculous. I don't know if you can tell my voice, I still get a little emotional thinking about it. Welcome to Digging In with JPR and CB. I'm your host as always, Nick Ashbourne, and today I'm excited to say our guest is Kevin Pillar, recently departed Blue Jays outfielder, the longest tenured Blue Jay for a while here, and just straight up a, a huge fan favorite. And from basically the, the moment he got that starting job, someone people in this city has always gravitated to. Yeah, it was a tough thing to see, especially for me, uh, somebody who I am close with, a friend of mine who I got to play with when I was rehabbing in high A. Uh, I had heard about him, got to see him come up to the big leagues and then have the success, right? And almost become the face of the team. Uh, you, you can argue Marcus Stroman, Aaron Sanchez, these kind of guys, uh, you know, are, are usually the faces. But offensively, him and Smoke have been the guys that have been around for a while. Uh, Superman to many people. I mean, I've been around a lot of Kevin Pillar jerseys on the streets. You see a lot of kids with capes. Um, I think he was uh, more than just a player to some. He was a superhero in a sense as a as a person and a player. And so it was sad to see him go. But I'm thankful that we get to have him on the show because I think that we need to kind of send him off with, with some praise and because he did a lot of great stuff for this city and for this team. He's the sort of guy that I think was really easy for fans to glom onto because most people aren't watching all 162, right? They're seeing highlights, whether they're watching a sports center or something like that or on Twitter. And so you would just see, even if you weren't watching that game, you'd see the Kevin Pillar highlights pop up. He's even had one since he came to the Giants. I saw that one on Sunday, a beautiful catch. Nice diving catch. Yeah, very familiar to a lot of Blue Jays fans. And so even if you weren't thinking about baseball that day or you weren't watching baseball, there was a pretty good chance that Kevin Pillar might intrude into your Twitter timeline or someone would text you and be like, oh man, did you see that thing Pillar did? And in that way, I think he became bigger in the minds of a lot of fans than most of the other Blue Jays, even if they were doing well at the same time. There's not many people that, that can have such a large defense highlight reel. Uh, that's what I think makes him special as well. I mean, offensively, you know, this guy actually came up. He was an offensive first player throughout the whole minor leagues. That was his thing. He could he could hit, he could hit, he could hit, he could hit. Um, and then kind of when he made that catch, I think is when he became quote-unquote Superman, right? I think that's where it kind of took him over. And everybody then was able to start to see, I think the metrics were able to see how much – he was able to steal runs and do different things. I think he would be even more. He, he played in a league in a division with Kevin Kiermeyer, who, uh, you know, his numbers were insane. So, so Kevin Pilar should have uh, the opportunity to have golden glo- or gold gloves. Hasn't had any because of, of playing in that same league. But, I mean, again, this is a guy who every single night that he went out there, there was something cool that was going to happen. I mean, even if it was him just running down the line and making it a bang-bang play, um, the way he went about it, he's a, he's a special player. And then the Giants obviously were able to see that and, uh, you know, get him away from the Blue Jays. Yeah, that one catch that you bring up, and I think it was a catch in left field, actually, where he stole that home run. 
and it's weird and this is maybe uh you know digging into my own personal career more than we need to have the pause but i remember that catch really well because i had just pitched a story on like you know kevin Plutter's defense is really good guys blah 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 and then my editor's like okay whatever and then i remember i was at a stand-up comedy show that night i wasn't at the uh game and i was just kind of trying to break through and get anything published with sportsnet and that catch happened and then the guy texted me he's like okay well we're definitely going to do your story now because now it's like fresh in everyone's mind so that was a cool moment for me kind of professionally as well as the world waking up to Kevin Pillar as well. And then, you know, from there he had countless other ones. So it's like that one isn't the one, but it kind of was the one where people started to think about Pilar that way. And I want to ask you a little bit more personally about him. Cause I think all the fans have seen what he's done defensively. You said you met him rehabbing. What's kind of the JP met Pilar story and how did you guys end up being friends? Well, I had heard about this this young kid that was out there and, and uh, you know, through the minor leagues was putting up big numbers and, and even in high, he was he was doing well. Um, I believe he had gotten called up that season. And, you know, I got there for the playoffs because I had broke my hand. And so I got the opportunity to play with him and he was such a good kid. Um, if you know, if anybody knows Pilar personally, he's very humble. Uh, almost to a fault sometimes uh, you know you want him to have a, a little bit more of that that uh, kind of cockiness in him which he, I'm sure he does when he plays but he's just such a good good human being that he's almost too nice at times um, but every time I came to the field he was a guy that you know you watch him prepare he always was working hard uh, this guy he one thing that I remember very vividly was he had an at bat and I mean, I forgot. It was like a curveball that they had thrown him with two strikes, and it was not even close, and he was still able, I mean, completely off balance, threw the bat out there and got a base hit to right field. And I remember seeing that at bat and going, like, this guy's going to play in the big leagues because those are like those are the little things that makes guys really good in the sense of when they don't have their A swing or when they don't have uh, a pitch to hit and they can still make something happen with it. Um, that was something that he was doing really, really well. All his at-bats were tough. He he was smart and would think with the pitcher. Um, but, again, he's a he's a phenomenal human being. And I think anybody who, who saw his, his interviews when he was leaving, you could tell how much he really, really cared um, with those tears and the emotion that he had. I think, you know, that was something really that you can tell what kind of human being he is. So, again, I, I, I think he is – uh, a guy will be very, very much uh, missed throughout the clubhouse, throughout the city. Um, but it, again, for my first, uh, you know, opportunity to play with him was that was that time in rehab in, in uh, the state league. And ever since then, we became buddies. And and I followed his career, and I got to see him come up. And then again, I've me and him have always kept in contact. And every time I come up here, he's one of the faces that I look forward to seeing. One thing that struck me was Justin Smoke's reaction to it because you don't see Smoke, you know, have much emotion in almost any context. He's one of those low heartbeat guys. That's part of what makes him good and what makes him special. But it seemed to really affect him and his wife put out a huge message on Twitter saying like how their families are intertwined and like how this is such a devastating blow for them. And that's a part of baseball that we don't really think of until someone gets someone gets traded then we're like oh wow what's going to happen with the family but during the season like these families come together because they you know they have similar weird schedules they have similar 
interests. Kids, kids yeah, they the have same kids, ages. their kids become friends. Yeah. And that's a huge part of it because especially with these veteran guys who are a little older in their thirties and are the age where they're having kids, that's a huge part of it. And so it seems like these two families were intertwined that way. And I'm sure that Kevin was a part of other people's families as well as well that we don't know about as publicly. Well, and, and again, that's, that's part of the, the relationships that are built. I mean, I think, you know, you are with these people more than your families as far as Pilar with the training staffs and then the families with each other, right? Like Pilar's wife and Smoke's wife, they're going to spend more time with each other because these guys, Justin and Kevin, are with each other in the field all the time. And so they have that bond with families and it is tough. I mean, it really is tough because you, you create some of the best friends on the planet that become your closest family. And then all of a sudden they're telling you, hey, you have, you're not going to be able to be around them and see, you, see them anymore. And it's even tougher because you don't know when it's going to happen. Like this wasn't something that was just like, hey, this is going to be going on. Like this was just out of the blue. And I think that's what makes it tougher is, you know, a lot of a lot of players, why you're starting to see people sign these contracts on stuff, they want that security to know what to expect. Like you come to the field one day, this is the last thing on your mind, and all of a sudden you're being traded to another team. And it just crumbles not only you as a human being, it crumbles your family, your wife and kids. You know, thankfully, you know, Pilar's baby is still too young. But if you remember, it's Drupal Cabrera. I don't know if you remember when he got traded. Uh, and I, I forgot what team it was from. I want to say it was from Washington. Uh, his son was like hysterically sobbing in the clubhouse. And it's because these they, these kids become friends of the guys on the team. Like this, fa- it, it is truly a family uh, affair. And it's and a guy, and a lot of people care a lot more on the human side uh, about each other than what's seen on TV. Right? You just see the guy play, but you don't realize. The relationships uh, within the clubhouse, him with the, the the staff, him with marketing staff, right? There's there's Marnie and Michelle and Shannon and Steph, all these people. They do all the marketing, right? They're there all the time with these players. You grow up with these ladies taking care of you, and they they work for the Blue Jays, and then all of a sudden it's like, all right, you got to break that up. And now these girls are having a tough time. Pilar's having a tough time, and that's just there's a huge family within the family and organizations and it and it really really takes a toll on everybody and that's the toughest part of the business is you don't want to get too invested at times because you you know that it's going to come to an end it's kind of a tip of the iceberg situation in terms of what fans see on that perspective and you're kind of opening that a little bit up and i'm not sure all fans realize this but there's a lounge literally you know steps from the clubhouse and it's called the Players' Wives Lounge, and that kind of seems like a weird, a little bit old-fashioned name for it. But these families are down there, maybe not every game, but they're down there all the time, and they're spending hours, you know, baseball game runs three hours. You're spending three hours together, kids and wives, you know, many, many times a week. Like, that. these are huge bonds that are going to form. Yeah, well, and you're right. There is a room there, right? And they have opportunities for parents to leave their kids they have a great op- uh, a great system where they have uh, like nannies or whatever it may be people that caretakers for the kids so that the parents can watch the games a lot of times parents um, it, it, they are able to enjoy the game the kids are able to have fun with each other in there and then a lot of times what I was gonna say was the parents also have their time in those rooms together I mean again you are with these people 
more often than not like i i would see my own family a few months out of the year uh when it was in the off season but other than that if you think about it february march april may june july all the way through september and sometimes october with these which they got to experience october if you think about it you just got november december and january that's three months out of the 12 that you're literally having a normal life as opposed to outside of baseball so baseball is a real real thick bond and it's not blood but it might as well be blood and so that's where uh there's so many different things that go on and and again you don't even know the the relationships that that they were able to make outside of the baseball field right they're still when they go home there's still people that they probably meet in the streets or have become good friends with through different charities or different events and it's just it becomes more than baseball and that's the toughest part is because you have to pick up your entire life and then just go not only to like maybe if you were in division or you're going to be coming back you're, you're going to the other side of the country uh and a different country you're going to the u.s and you're going to a completely different division and you're going to a different league so the chances of you seeing these people go from almost slim to none so that's even a deeper part of this departure i think it's even tougher uh and it makes it tougher but again that's the tough part about baseball for players is there's never that sense of security and there's nothing worse than you know things like this that happen that make you really really kind of go back to walking on eggshells because you can get comfortable which i'm sure pilar was and smoke was because of their situation they're they know that they're here they're making a good amount of money all of a sudden good night we'll see you another day yeah, and I think you hit the nail on the head right there with uh, the fact that it's more than baseball with Pilar and Toronto. And bringing it back a little bit to the fan experience, I think that one of the things, and we've touched on this before about Toronto, and you know, you can argue is it a Raptors place now, Hockey City, whatever it is, people here have always really liked that to see that effort, like that grinder. It's basketball guys. It's not the stars. It's hockey guys maybe who get in a few scraps. And Pilar was one of those guys who had that type of projection where he would show up every day. Clearly, he put his body on the line. He definitely played hurt at times. Like when between 2015 and 2018, sort of when he took the reins, as a starting center fielder, only one guy played more innings in center field during that time in the whole big leagues, which is Charlie Blackman, who's a very similar type of guy with that mentality. And they absolutely, I've been out to Colorado, like they absolutely they should love, love him. him. Yeah, they should love him. He's yeah. an amazing player. That's kind of besides the point. But Pilar was a guy who would take all these risks physically and still be able to show up to work. And I think that beyond even the spectacular plays that he would make, that's something people in this city always loved and respected about him. Well, yeah, and again, like you said, I think not only did he do all that stuff on the field and the way he went about his business and the way he cared about things, but for me, his humbleness is what people also gravitate to because he was a person who was always out there, you know, making a difference in the community. Even every time you saw an interview, you could see he was well-spoken. He, he again, humbles the really the word that, I, that comes to my mind is he, he always came through as just this personable person. And I think that's what people really gravitate to. I think, for example, for myself in my career, I mean, I'd had an okay career here. I did all right. I did some good things. I did some bad things. But 
I think why I'm still able to come around and do a lot of things where the Blue Jays have me come in and do ambassador work and stuff like that is because of the way I treated people. And people really respect that. And I think that's something for for Pilar, who he was somebody who was very well respected, very well loved. And, you know, now I ask people, and it's crazy to me to think, but I asked players, and I, even at an event yesterday, I asked player, uh, these kids, and I'm like, hey, who, who are, who's your favorite player? And they're like, I don't know. I'm like, what do you mean you don't know? And they're like, I don't know who my favorite player is because I don't know anybody on the team anymore. And I'm like, well, I mean, yeah, you should, right? There's Grichuk and there's Smoke. And then, oh, well, it was Pilar, but I don't, I don't know who it is now. And so that's crazy to me uh, to see, you know, even young kids. It affects young kids and, and them not knowing and them kind of being distraught about it. And so, um, again, baseball and sport in general is something that's very special because you can create these relationships with these guys uh, if, as fans and as human beings and you meet them out in the street. But this is the tougher part of baseball and already in a tough season than this happens. I think it's it's it just really puts perspective on, uh, you know, how important these guys are to the community and not just as the person who puts on a uniform and goes out there and makes phenomenal plays and hits balls out of the park. All right. Well, we could talk about Kevin Pillar and the virtues of Kevin Pillar for a long time, probably for the entire podcast. But I think at a certain point, you guys would like to hear Kevin Pillar talk about Kevin Pillar. And that's why we've invited him on the show. So he's going to join us now. Obviously, you guys already know how we feel about him. Um, we all know how the fans feel about him. And the, and the number one question is to start it off with, I don't think people understand the process of how this goes and how kind of just hits people, you know, blindsidedly. Um how did it all go down? How did you hear about it, and and how did it all go? Um, it was uh, whatever day I got traded. I think it was a Tuesday. Typical morning at my house. Got up, you know, spent some time with my family. I actually had an appointment. I was uh, I had to go to at ten thirty. Um, got an Uber. Right at ten thirty, a minute later, I got a call from Ross and. I kind of just tapped my driver on the shoulder and said, hey, I need you to take me back to the hotel. I knew he wasn't calling to wish, uh, tell me good morning, see how I was doing. Um, you know, maybe a year ago, two years ago, if I would have got that phone call, I probably would have assumed he just wanted to chat, see what was going on, talk to me about something. But kind of knowing where that organization was at, where I was at in that organization uh, with all the rumors, um, it just kind of felt like, uh, you know, that's what he was calling to tell me. And, um, you know, I picked up the phone and said, hello. And I said, where am I going? And uh, he told me. And um, obviously it's extremely hard news to hear. It's never um, something you want to hear, especially when you're in a place you're really happy, you're really comfortable. Um, I knew it was going to be a tough season there, but it was something I wanted to be a part of. And, knowing how bright the future was going to be there. But, um, you know, once I was able to, you know, get off the phone, let it sink in, I called my agent real quick and, and let him know what was going on. And then, uh, you know, I had to deliver the somewhat tough, and I guess now looking back on a little bit exciting news to my wife that um, we're on the move and she wanted to know where. And I told her San Francisco and, you know, likewise, it's really shocking because it's a place she was comfortable and 
Uh, our family was comfortable and we were all moved into our place and we were really excited about it. And, you know, we have really good friends there and really good relationships we made with, um, you know, teammates and, and teammates, families and wives and kids. But, you know, you know, fast forward to today, um, you know, we're still in that transition of being traded. You know, all of our stuff that was in Toronto just got shipped here. Um, it arrived in the clubhouse in San Francisco yesterday. So, um, you know, we're still dealing with that. It's not something where, you know, we pack a couple suitcases and you move to a new place and there's a place waiting for you. And, you know, everything's just a smooth, easy transition. You know, we spent the last four, four nights in a hotel with, you know, my wife and a baby, which isn't the easiest, you know, a lot of stress on the, and for my wife trying to find us a place to live and especially in the most expensive city in the world, San Francisco wasn't um, an easy task, but, you know, we found a place to live. And, you know, as we speak, I got movers here, moving some stuff in and getting some furniture situated. And, um, you know, hopefully uh, by the end of today, if not tomorrow, we'll be officially moved in and unpacked and um, kind of ready to start this new, new journey. Yeah, and that's a, that's the one thing people don't realize how much goes into it. But you know, coming into the Blue Jays organization, right? Like, there's people that you meet, even coming up through the minor leagues, that no one has ever heard of. Coaches that that never really have an opportunity to be spoken of, but they're they've been down there. You know, like the Dennis Holmbergs and these guys that have been down there forever. For me, there was there was one particular person that I remember. There was a couple, but maybe one that stood out with Ch- uh, with Chad Matola, who really, really made an impression on me, and I think was able to turn my career around um, and and help me get to the big leagues. Was there anyone coming up through the organization specifically, or, or even a couple, or any stories that you have that can that can kind of you can put your finger towards that really, really made a difference in Kevin Pilar's career? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a no brainer. It was my. Uh... Rookie ball hitting coach in Bluefield, Kenny Graham. He's no longer with the organization. He's actually the uh, hitting coordinator for the Milwaukee Brewers now. Uh, Well-deserved on his part because he's uh, just a, got a great eye for hitting. But more importantly, he's just super positive and, and knows how to motivate guys. And, you know, I just, you know, I was fortunate to have him not only in Bluefield when, you know, I kind of put myself on the map as a, you know, a late draft pick who, ultimately goes out there, wins a batting title his first year in short season. But, you know, I got to follow up um, the following year in Lansing um, in low A. He was my hitting coach for, for the half year I spent there. But, um, you know, I just remember about, you know, four or five weeks into the season in Bluefield, um, you know, I was only hitting about 100. Um, wasn't really playing every day. Um, you know, and I remember walking into his, his, uh, his office and being like, I, I need to talk to you and be real with you. And I know people are going to make excuses because I was a late round draft pick. I played a division two college. You know, I haven't played with a wood bat a whole lot, but I said, Kenny, I know how to hit. I've hit my whole life. I've hit everywhere I've gone. Um, I know how to hit, you know, so let's figure this out, me and you. And he really just taught me how to be accountable about my work and how to work and really, taught me how to use the whole field. He taught me how to take bratting practice with a purpose. He taught me how to get a routine in the cage. Um, and, you know, ultimately I went out there and 
won the batting title my first year. Then next year in Lansing, I became the league MVP, spending a half a year there. And I, I give him a lot of credit for that. And it was nothing he taught me necessarily mechanical about hitting, but it was about how to go about my work the right way. And it was about how to be accountable and just how to be a, a competitor every single day. Kevin, one thing that went kind of viral in Blue Jays world kind of immediately after you traded was there was this picture of you at the plate with the Giants and then Russell Martin is behind the dish with the Dodgers. And a lot of people were commenting on that, like, wow, life comes at you fast. The Blue Jays really are changing. I'm just wondering how that moment goes when you have two guys who've been together for a while. Were there words exchanged? Did it feel weird to you being at Dodger Stadium in that situation? Or do you guys just kind of go about your business? One thing about this is, is as competitive guys are on the field and you, you love to compete against guys, you, you guys do have friends on other teams. Guys have players they played with on other teams that um, they stay in touch with. And Russ is one of those guys who, even throughout spring training, did a really good job staying in touch with me, would always FaceTime me during hours that I was at the field and wanted to kind of check in with some of his former teammates, some of his friends there. And um, you know, I happened to talk to him maybe a couple of days before that, and he kind of heard kind of rumors about me maybe getting traded, and he just kind of talked to me about it would be cool if I came out to the West Coast. You know, obviously my family's out here, and um, I get a chance to see him a lot more. But, um, you know, once I got traded on my way to the airport um, in Toronto, I actually FaceTimed Russ, and he was – laying on the beach in Manhattan Beach, and uh, he said, I'll see you later today. Didn't know he was going to be catching, didn't know I was going to get a chance to play that day. But, um, you know, there's not a whole lot of conversation between a catcher and a hitter because, um, you know, you have a job to do. But, you know, he definitely um, said he was excited to see me, and I told him I was excited to see him and that we'll be seeing each other a lot more. And, um, you know, he told me I didn't look terrible in uh, the black and orange Kevin, you made some remarks on Sunday, and I think some Blue Jays fans took it the wrong way. I interpreted it as you talking about how cool this environment with uh, the Giants is and its environment you haven't experienced before, obviously having been with one organization your whole career. So I was wondering if you could expand on what's been so cool about the Giants and your first impressions being in that organization. I think people are always going to try to draw comparisons regardless of you know what I say or what I do it's always going to be something where or at least initially when you get traded from somewhere um, nothing none of my comments had ill intentions to talk about the Blue Jays I was strictly talking about my experience here in San Francisco thus far but um, you know what I said was true you know it was the most fun I had on a baseball field all year individually as a team you know I I was able to get on base and steal second, score on sack fly, make a nice play, something that, you know, I haven't been able to do uh, individually all year. Um, so, you know, me saying I had the most fun on the field was, was accurate. And um, when I just kind of talked about the win environment, I'm not saying we never had any fun in Toronto. We, I had the most fun I ever had playing baseball in Toronto during those, those playoff runs. But I was talking about the atmosphere that, the team creates after winning games as far as, you know, having a, you know, a fog machine and some strobe lights going off there and it looking like a, a rave inside the clubhouse and guys just being, you know, really pumped up for a win. And, um, you know, guys were just super, you know, some of these superstars that I'm getting a chance to play with, some of these guys that, um, you know, with their World Series championship rings, um, not having – 
individually good games, just being genuinely happy for, you know, you know, a rookie getting his first hit and a rookie getting his first major league win and, you know, really celebrating those guys' accomplishments on the field, um, you know, in, in the light of a win was just something kind of refreshing to see. Not to say it never happened um, in Toronto, but, you know, I just wish um, people would, you know, really stop trying to, you know, nitpick things that you say and, and make comparisons when I'm really just reflecting on, um, you know, my experience here. Listen, anybody anybody that, that has any kind of chatter like that is nonsense. Uh, everybody knows the, the raw emotion. I mean, I saw your interviews. I mean, no one understands how hard it is and how much you actually cared. I do because I know the kind of person you are. Um, but I also understand. I've gotten to play with Derek Holland as a teammate. I've gotten to play with Evan Longoria. And that was something that is special that after games, and I don't know if Longoria still runs it, but is Longoria still the guy after the game that they'll give the player of the game, they'll toast the player of the game? Is that still part of it? Yeah, that's part of it. And then obviously with Brandon Belt being here, there's a couple um, there's a couple of Giants, um, you know, WWE Championship belts that um, is awarded to, you know, who they feel was the most valuable player of the game. And um, like I said, it's just, it's just little things like that that, you know, Ultimately, we want to go out there and win games, but when you have that little extra something to look forward to after winning the game and really just being able to celebrate and and um, enjoy people's success on the field makes you want to win even more. No doubt, and it's, a, and it's about having fun. And then, um, you know, something else for me that I wanted to ask you is, as a catcher, right, uh, you know, you look at the outfield, you're always looking in the same direction, and you know, when I went to Texas, it was a little bit different, but I had played there. I went to Tampa a little bit different. When you were able to stand in center field at, at you know in San Fran and be able to look from that perspective, did you catch yourself just going like, man, you know, one of the best center fielders of all time had this uniform on? Uh, the fans, obviously, this place is is one of the most exciting places to play as far as atmosphere. Like, do you step back and be able to take it all in and go, oh my goodness, dude, this is like some special stuff? Yeah, I wouldn't say initially. I think. Um... You know, I only played a handful of games in San Francisco um, as a member of the Blue Jays. I just remember being a little intimidated playing that outfield without, you know, getting a lot of reads off the bat during BP. The sun's difficult. The weather's um, constantly changing. And obviously the uniqueness of the ballpark. Um, so my initial thoughts coming over here was everyone talked about, oh, it's going to be great. You're going to get a chance to run around there and, you know, really show what you can do as a center fielder. But I was definitely nervous. It was a place that I always in the back of my mind said, damn, that was an extremely tough place to play. You know, I, I remember misreading some balls there as a visiting player, losing some balls in the sun during BP. Um, and sure enough, you know, we go out there, um, you know, opening day is three straight day games where there's no on-field stuff. So I kind of just had to wing it um, and go out there and just kind of use my instincts and, and, you know, really rely on the coaches as far as like positioning and, you know, wind direction and stuff like that. But, um, you know, once I was able to get my feet wet out there and settle in a little bit, um, you know, you just think about the recent success of the San Francisco Giants and, and winning three World Series just this decade. Um, you think about all the great players that have put on that uniform and you definitely get that special sense that you're part of this really cool fraternity now of um, just being a member of a historic franchise with some of the best players of all time wearing those uniforms. And, you know, it's kind of easy to look over my, I'm trying to think it would be over my 
um, right shoulder and you see, you know, Barry Bonds and Willie Mays and, you know, Willie McCovey, the amount of home runs they hit and just how respected they were in this game. Um, and you, you know, you walk in the clubhouse and, you know, they're, they're not shy and, and, um, you know, reflecting on the history of this organization, you know, whether it's individual accomplishments, whether it's team accomplishments and winning World Series, but you just get that sense walking through that stadium and in that clubhouse and even on the field that it's a proud organization of their their history and um, it's cool to be a part of that. Kevin, you're a veteran in this game and people know what you're about and what to expect from you, but what does it do for you integrating with a new team when you're able to really early in your tenure, you know, have one of those trademark catches hit a grand slam, kind of make a lot of things happen in the first couple of games wearing that uniform? Yeah, I mean, I think the one thing that has been really refreshing almost almost too much to some degree is just, you know, the compliments and encouragement that I've gotten from my teammates and coaching staff. You know, they um, every time they've talked about me coming over here and me being a part of this team, they will only talk about the great things that I was able to accomplish on the field. They don't talk about my struggles or the bad things that I accomplished. And that's kind of what they expected uh, me to bring every single day. And, um, you know, even guys that are a little bit more stoic or intimidating guys like Bumgarner have, you know, taken me aside and told me how excited he was for me to be a part of this team. And it's been a long time since he's had, um, you know, I, defensive outfield like this which you know includes Parra and Duggar who are you know extremely good outfielders as well um and all the pitchers just seem to be really excited and you know even a couple of days ago me bunting for a base hit stealing second getting a third on an overthrow and scoring on a you know sack fly there's guys in the dugout tell me that you know we haven't had this type of player in a long time we're really excited keep doing what you're doing so you know, for me to go out there and make a catch like that, hit the grand slam yesterday, you know, I've kind of just been waiting to, you know, have my moment, um, you know, as a giant to, to say that I'm here and, you know, you're getting the player that you expected to get. Um, definitely feels good. But, you know, I think, honestly, it feels better for me. Um, give me confidence. Um, but my, my teammates and coaching staff have done a great job, you know, kind of just – you know, pumping me up and, you know, knowing, knowing what type of player they're getting. Well, I know what kind of player they're getting and I know what kind of person they're getting and the fans need to understand what kind of special human being, not only the things that you get to go out there and do. Um, I know, you know, this is the last thing for me and I want to give you an opportunity to, to kind of sign off. But, you know, seeing Amanda, seeing Kobe, I've seen you since when I met you in high and um, it was emotional for me to watch this happened to you. It's emotional for me to even have this conversation with you because I know how much I enjoyed having you around. And I know that uh, what you're going to do is going to be special continuing on your career. But I want, you know, not everybody has Twitter. Not everybody has these things. So I want to give you the floor to be able to just say what you want to say. Um, you know, I mentioned even Marnie and Shannon and all these the people that be behind the scenes that don't, you know, people don't realize how much they do. But just say what you want to say to the fans. And, and I know you you posted it on Twitter and on Instagram, but not everybody gets to see that. So I just wanted to see, you know, give you the floor and uh, kind of sign out as as uh, Kevin Pilar and in, in, uh, T.O. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't really want to... Um... 
it's so hard for me to, um, you know, reflect on it. I think it's easier when you write it down, you know, um, I still get emotional talking about it because like you said, there's a lot of things that go behind the scenes. You know, it's easy to thank my teammates. It's easy to thank, um, you know, Alex and Kevin Fox and Paul Beeson guys that believed in me. It's easy to thank the fans because you interact with them all the time and, you know, um, but it's just a lot of the people that are behind the scenes, like you mentioned, Marnie, Shannon, Stephanie, um, security guards at the stadium, elevator operators, um, you know, just people in the city, you know, waiters, waitresses, bartenders, people that just have just been super supportive of me and, you know, the, the good and the bad that I brought on the field, off the field, people that um, just always made me feel like family. Toronto always felt like my home more than California, more than Arizona. It's a place I spent a lot of time. Um, it's a place that I grew up, you know, like I mentioned in my, my post, I was a 24 year old boy when I right out of college, when I stepped foot in Toronto for the first time, um, scared to death. Um, just really excited to be in the big leagues. Didn't know if I was ever going to stay in the big leagues. You know, I left there as a 30 year old man with a wife and a kid and, um, you know, five years later in the big leagues, um, you know, established. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just so hard for me to talk to it. And, you know, it's, I think it's going to be really, I think it's going to be really emotional going back there in a couple of weeks. We're in a different uniform. I'm, I'm definitely excited for it because, um, there was a lot of people that I didn't get a chance to, um, personally say bye to personally get a chance to, um, you know, let them know how much they meant to me and my family. Um, you know, and I think just getting up back on that field one more time and, you know, maybe really giving the the fans a genuine thank you and letting them know how much I appreciate everything they, they, they did for me is something that I'm looking forward to. And, you know, most importantly, I'm looking forward to seeing some of my friends and my teammates, guys that, um, you know, I was there early. I got traded. I left the stadium about one o'clock that day. I didn't get a chance to see all my teammates. Um, I got a chance to see a couple of them. So, you know, these are just all things I'm looking forward to, but um, I don't know if you could tell my voice. I still get a little emotional thinking about it just because it meant so much to me. And I felt like I gave so much to that city and I got so much back that, um, you know, I feel like hopefully I do a lot of great things here in San Francisco and hopefully I can play here for a long time, but, um, you know, Toronto's just always going to be a special place for me. Thank you very much, man. Kevin Pilar, you are, are a one of one human being on this planet, man. And I, uh, thank you for having, uh, this conversation with us. I appreciate you guys. It feels almost a little bit crass to go from, uh, all that Kevin Pilar tribute to talking about what's going on with the blue Jays right now. But, it's unavoidable. This lack of hitting is has reached a point that it's it's kind of ridiculous. I mean, it's you don't want to sit around and point fingers, and you know, I think that you know when the Blue Jays come back home, it's not going to help if you boo them or whatnot. But it is something we haven't seen before—a deep, deep slump, a slump deep enough that you even sense that Charlie Montoyo's positivity is waning a little bit. And when you see that happen, you know that things are bad. So JP, what are you seeing from this Blue Jays team that just cannot get anything done with the bat? Well, first, I want to say that booing never helps. Because uh, believe me, if there's 
I feel what's going on right now is the pressures of already a team that feels like they have to prove themselves. Now, all of a sudden, you get these these players that are thinking uh, too much. And in this game and in anything that you do, if you think too much, your reaction time isn't good. And you're seeing this with a lot of, you know, takes, strike threes. You're seeing this with some bad swings. I, what that tells me is that kind of – that goes back into my brain as when I was struggling and I was striking out a lot. It's because I was so insecure of my plan at home plate. When I was hitting, I was worried about a fastball or is this guy going to throw me a curveball or on, on all these different things going through my head instead of just going, hey, dude, when you were playing wiffle ball as a kid, did you sit there and think about all this stuff or did you just see the wiffle ball and then just smash it? And so it happens, right? It's an easy, 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 you know, kind of hole to, to go down into, but that's what it's like for me. And I, and, and also, you think about the whole co- hitting is contagious, uh, you know, analogy. It's also contagious when it's the struggle, right? And it does. It does. You look at the pitching staff. The pitching staff is feeding off each other, and they're putting up some pretty good numbers. Uh, you look at the hitting. The hitting is struggled, and then they're kind of going off of each other, and then it becomes more and more, uh, you know, the pressure becomes more immense on your on your shoulders, you walk by the dugout and then you can feel that maybe the coaches are starting to get a little tensed up, right? Uh, and then it just it becomes a bad vibe. You're in the clubhouse after the game. Everyone comes to the field with a new kind of, all right, this is the day, right? Oh, man, positive, positive, positive. And then five innings in, you're like, holy crap, we're right back in the same thing. And then after the game, you're just like, your head's spinning because you're trying to figure out what the heck's going on? But it's not making a difference, right? It's not you're not the, the results aren't changing. So I think at some point I saw you know Charlie have the interview yesterday. You could tell that he was a little frustrated. Listen, they'll eventually. This isn't going to be the whole season. If this is the whole season, then holy smokes, dude! You're going to make some history. Oh my! Not I mean, it'll, it'll, yeah, it'll be. But that's not the way it's going to be, right? These guys have too good of a track record throughout the lineup. There's some good players. Uh, it's just right now there's too much thinking going on at home plate. And I just wish uh, that they were just, hey, let's have a meeting and go, hey, you know what? Forget all this information. Forget all these advanced stats and, and scouting reports. Everybody stand at home plate and get ready to hit and have fun like you're a kid. Stop worrying about all the other stuff because it's very, for me, as a person that went through it, it's very evident right now what's going on is they feel the heat. They're trying to start off, do well. They're trying to have fans. They know that they're, they're, the fans are not around. They're trying to do all these different things for things that they can't control. All they can control is each pitch, winning each pitch. And I think that that's what they have to go back to is being simple. And for me, there are different types of uh, – let's just start with strikeouts because that's kind of the big thing that's been there. There's different types of strikeouts, right? Like you've seen – Randall Grichuk, you know, he's whiffed on some slot, nasty sliders on the corner, and that's going to happen with him. That's not that doesn't bother me when I see that. But when I see, you know, Brandon Drury's been a bit of a target, and he's been on the bench. But part of the reason why is he's watching hittable fastballs in the zone, lock him up. And we saw it with Teoscar Hernandez a little bit too. That's a guy who 
is his role is to hit fastballs in the zone hard. And when he's letting them go by and walk into the dugout, that's when you start to think, okay, there's something a little bit wrong here. This is a passive mistake, not an aggressive mistake. And that doesn't mean you need to be swinging the bat 90% of the time or that every swing strikeout is better than every looking strikeout. But over the last couple of games, there really have been a few times where it seems like they've been letting these fastballs that, you know, tough. A lot of these Cleveland guys throw hard, but at the same time hittable, just pass them by. And so, you know, as a team, they're hitting 213 against fastballs. And there's, you know, there's lots of different metrics for it. Fangraphs has them as minus 9.2 runs against fastballs. That's 27th in the league. And they've struck out on fastballs 40 times. That's second worst in the league. So at a basic level, hitting fastballs has to be your first port of call, and they're just not doing it. Yeah, well, and then it was, you know, I learned that later in my career. I was always worried about all these different things and mechanics and this and that. And all of a sudden, dude, I'm just getting pitches shoved down my throat, and I'm striking out struggling and i finally had to tell the hitting coach i said listen every single time that i'm late for a fastball i owe you 20 dollars because i had to make it to a point where i had to go dude you have to stop thinking because it's again you come to the field every day with a fresh mindset right all right this is going to be a different day as soon as you step in the box man i don't know what it is and i'm sure we get a ton of players can talk about it you may have a plan, but as soon as you step in the box, man, just there's some thoughts that creep into your head. You know, what if this? What if that? What if this? And so I had to, how could I eliminate it was I had to say, all right, I'm going to lose money. Like I'm going to have to pay money every time. So I had at bats where I would step out in my head, I'd go, oh, it's it's 1-0. I think he's going to throw me a slider right here. But And then I'd have to stop myself and go, no, 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 no. You can't be late for a fastball. You have to be ready for a fastball. No thinking. And I went, and then all of a sudden, I had a great... I mean, that's, that's what I was doing when I was with Tampa. And I had a great, you know, whatever. I hit 310 for those last two months was... That's my, that was my approach. I was not going to be late for fastball. I was going to be ready to hit. And when you're striking out on that many fastballs, there's something that tells... That just tells me you're thinking too much. You, that is where... When I scout, and as a catcher, I always scout the lineup, right? Well, how am I going to pitch... You know, Alex Rodriguez, Mark Teixeira. That's what I'm looking at all these guys' as numbers. All the best players in baseball always have very high averages on fastballs because the highest percentage of pitch that you get throughout the league is a fastball. And so if I were to tell you, hey, Nick, you're going to get over the course of 2,000 pitches, you're going to get 1,200 fastballs. Be ready for those 1,200 fastballs. And you are, and and you're ready for them. You're going to have success. But the thing is, is it's tough to look at it as a big picture, right? Everything is, you look at it right now. And so that's where I think these guys are struggling is, is they are not hitting the fastball. And if you go time and time again, Aaron Judge, when Aaron Judge was going off that one year, he was hitting over 400 on fastballs. Then he hit a huge slump and he was hitting a buck. I remember reading about it and like look into it. He was hitting like a buck something, uh, 100 something on, on fastballs. I think that they have to keep it simple. If I was anybody who had anything to do with this team, I would say, hey, listen, guys, again, I want you to be ready for every fastball. If you swing and miss at a breaking ball, who cares? But we can't take fastballs for strike three. We can't take good pitches to hit because that's why we're falling in these holes Holes, and we're, all of a sudden we're 0-2, 1-2, and then now we're worried about this breaking ball, and it's not coming. They're, they're striking us out with fastballs. 
Yeah, in this era, we've seen fastball usage go down. We do have more breaking balls, but at the end of the day, that is the pitch you're going to see the most of, and so you have to be ready for that pitch. And I think that when we talk about what good at bats are and you say you watch a guy even if they're out or if it's a single or whatever like that's a good at bats often a guy works a count he takes close pitches yada 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 gets deep but you know my favorite at bat that i saw on sunday was danny jansen against adam simber adam simber ridiculously hard submarine guy you're a right-handed hitter it's almost impossible to get a hit off this guy and Jansen had gone deep at bats the previous two at bats and had struck out. And so he came up and he swung at the first pitch. It's a sinker, kind of low and away, edge of the strike zone. Not a great pitch to hit, but he was aggressive and he poked it to right field for a single. And there's your only run of the game for the Blue Jays. And I think that not a lot of the guys on this team are going to walk a ton. Smoke should, Jansen will a little bit. But in general, this should be an aggressive power lineup that's what they're good at so i like to see guys coming out and swing at the first pitch if you can hit it oh and that's and the thing is too is not just swinging at the first pitch is being completely ready to hit it and so you know if you foul off the first pitch you're 01 and now you're in a little bit of a hole and i think they have to go out there and really do a good job of not caring about if they swing and miss this or that because those little thoughts make a difference as far as the the outcome right for example the whole ignorance is bliss or the keep it simple stupid those things that are those those sayings that are used in baseball quite a bit and they're used because if i go out there and i'm not thinking and i'm just reacting i'm gonna do my best work and that's in anything right if you overthink in business you overthink it it could backfire and so i think that's something that's going on and i'll give you an example you know during one of my bats that i remember that stands out and this is how these things work is i faced a lefty from the braves I forgot his name. Uh, he's in the big leagues in the bullpen. And he he uh, threw me a first pitch cutter, right? Swang, foul ball. Second pitch curveball, swang and miss. So I step out of the box and I'm like, oh, 0-2. He's throwing me cutter. He's throwing me curveball. I looked stupid on the curveball before, blah, blah, blah. These are all the things that go through hitters' minds, man. And people don't realize that. Like, this is what's really going on. And then at this time, this is when I was trying to keep it simple and go, hey, no, you got to be ready for the fastball. Who cares if I swing and miss at a breaking ball? It is what it is. But I committed to this plan. And so all of a sudden, I get back in the box and I'm like, oh, I got to get ready for the fastball. He's throwing 94. I'm, I don't care. Whatever happens. Tries to throw a fastball and I hit a home run. And that's where, for me, I started really realizing for a long time I was worried about so many stupid things that you can fall into the trap as opposed to just dude go up there keep it simple do there's too many things that can go on that can make this game super tough and again why it's statistically the hardest thing to do is like hit a baseball and be your failure and you're the best of all time as a 300 hitter so that's for me what i would say is like hey man you guys have to make that adjustment and right now there's too much information. There's too much thinking going on. There's too much. They just have to, they need to, they have like this a thousand pound monkey on their back. It seems like everybody hitting right now. They just need to go out there. If you look, if you honestly, the one person to me that looks like he's free and I think it's because of his experience and he's just his, his mindset is Freddie Galvis. I mean, Freddie Galvis goes up there, he's having good at bats. Yeah, he'll strike out or whatever, but he's just, he's just very free and easy even watching him play defense right he just catches the ball doesn't look like he's going crazy just lets it go and throws it to first base easy they need to take a little bit more of the that kind of mindset approach right now because 
if not, man, and you come back to the city and then the media is going to get on it and all these different things, it's going to build. They just need to really, really try to sit back and relax. So while uh, the situation with Toronto is undoubtedly a little bit grim on that front, if you go down the ladder one one rung, you're going to wind up in Buffalo where the guys are hitting and you've got Bichette there, you're going to have Vladdy there. And a guy I wanted to talk about today as we kind of spotlight prospects this podcast is Kevin Biggio because to me he's a really interesting guy. He's got off to this you know, amazing start, whatever, 17 trips to the plate, hitting 500, two dingers, a bunch of walks, uh, five walks to one strikeout, like all that stuff that, you know, there's no dispute in that. That's great, whatever. It's 17 plate appearances. He's a guy I've always been interested in because it feels like he gets mentioned. It's like, oh, it's Bo, Vladdy, and Vigio because they came up together, because they have the bloodlines. But it's a sort of a different situation. This guy is about to be 24. He's just getting his feet wet at AAA. Well, first of all, I want to talk about that, the age thing, because age compared to level is a huge barometer by which we judge prospects. And part of the reason why Vlad's so special is because he's able to hit at AA and AAA at 19 or whatever, and Bo only a year older. Whereas when a guy does it a little bit further down the line, you don't feel like he has as much ceiling. So him doing let's say he's going to hit well at triple a now him doing that at 24 is that something that worries you or takes a shine off for you uh no it's everybody's path is different and i think you know there's a lot of great players that get to the league even later uh that that flourish tommy fam is a guy who got to the league later in his career was in the minor leagues for a while and now he's one of the better hitters in the american league so i don't i don't really worry about that for me I recall that I said that he was my kind of hidden prospect. Uh, one of the shows we did in spring training. He's a guy who has continued to get better. And that's what I want to look at, right? I want to look at the guy who was able to struggle a little bit in the minor leagues, the guy who's been some stuff through the minor leagues. And then all of a sudden he's been in the shadow of these guys. And then double A goes off and hits 20 plus home runs as a second baseman. He's continued to get better and better and better. And that's, for me, a very, very good sign because this is a person who's experienced adversity already. This is a person who has had to go through some crap in the minor leagues that now when he gets to the big leagues, he's going to have a better head on his shoulders. He's going to be able to handle these different things. Also, it doesn't hurt that your dad is an absolute rocket of a player. I mean, I think that's pretty good to come through some Hall of Fame, Hall of Fame uh, bloodlines. But uh, that's for me one thing that I think it, it hurt me in my career, right? I didn't really ever really struggle until my fourth year, or yeah, my fir- fourth season in the big leagues. And then all of a sudden I didn't know what to do. I mean, it was, and then you have 50,000 at the time, you know, opening day booing you. And, you know, later in my career, I, I just didn't know how to, to, to get out of that funk. And I think that that's something that I would have really actually appreciated earlier in my career it was going through some kind of, pretty big failure so I can learn how to be able to get out of it in the minor leagues uh, not under the microscope because as we all know guys get sent down the AAA not as much for a mechanical uh, fix a mental just break because you go down the minor leagues and there's two there's two uh, medium people in the clubhouse and if you're 0 for 4 they're not really all over you in the big leagues you're on TV every day you have the media there every day you have the you have the just the scope of eyes on you are a big difference and the pressure is a big difference. 
so that's why guys get sent down because they, they can't really handle that and they need to have a little bit of a, of a of a breather i think that he's been able to have enough ups and downs and 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 continue to get better through the minor leagues that he's going to be a better major league player because of it yeah and as you mentioned the step forward he took last year was huge like but he was a fifth round pick before that didn't really produce in a very special way in the minors you know at dunedin you know, he had 11 home runs. His, you know, that's a pitcher-friendly league. Like, he didn't do badly, per se, but he didn't jump off the page. And then yes, yesterday, last year, he really took off. What I find interesting, and I don't necessarily always know how to interpret this, is guys in the minor leagues who get a lot of their value from walking. Like, his walk rate last year was massive. It was 17.8%. And there's always two ways to look at that. One is, oh, this guy's got a really mature approach. That's going to really help him when he gets to the next level. Um, the second way to look at it is that at the big league level, no one is going to be scared of you. People are going to come right after you, especially when you're a rookie and early in your career. Is he going to be able to draw the kind of walks he drew in the minor league? Well, he probably won't because 17.8 is ridiculous. That's kind of like almost Joey Votto type of level. But how much of that ability to get on base is he going to retain when big league pitchers are more aggressive with them? And I think that's an interesting test for him. Well, it, I had this conversation with, with uh, somebody in the front office of the Marlins was some guys are just guys that get on base and walk. Some guys can't walk, right? Like Adam Jones, you're, you tell Adam Jones, hey, man, I need you to walk more, and he may not be able to ever do it. And I think – so what I'm saying is I think that you're, it's something that you kind of just have uh, since you were a kid. I'm sure there's guys that just walk more and they've evolved and they, they understood, you know, swinging more at their pitch and more advanced approach. Some guys didn't, right? I was a kid that I swung at everything, even as a kid. Um, and I continue to do it in my big league career. But I think that's something to me that is just there like i remember one time they asked me to to go to the fall league not one time the only time they asked me they went to the to go to the fall league and they said hey you need to learn how to walk like you hit 298 and had 20 whatever seven home runs that year uh but you only walked 18 times that's not going to work in the big leagues and i was like all right so i went to the fall league and i didn't know what the heck to do like it was so weird because i was like all right i gotta learn how to walk but what the heck it feels weird taking pitches and all these different things and i and i struggled at the beginning and then i finally just said i'm just gonna be me so i think that that's something that's inevitable that he's gonna come up to the big leagues and he's gonna walk he won't have the walk rate like you said at, at that percentage who knows he may he may possibly do it but at the end of the day that's just something that is in his in his approach and is it's in his dna and so i think that when he comes up here, when he gets here, he will walk and he'll continue to walk. And that'll be something that'll be a part of his game. So for me, it's exciting to see that that's what he's doing. And that's what works for Kevin Biggio. If you were to tell Vlad, like, hey, dude, you have to be less aggressive. He might not be the uber prospect that he is, right? And that's the same thing for his dad. If you would have told Vlad, hey, man, you can't swing at all those pitches. Do you have the Hall of Famer? Who knows? But everybody's DNA is different, and I think that's something that works for Kevin, and it'll work for him here in the big league level. Yeah, Bijou is a really interesting figure in the whole scope of the Blue Jays' rebuild because we're kind of taking it for granted that Vlad and Bo are going to be guys. 
And, you know, there's always any prospect, no matter how big, can end up being a disappointment. But it seems like it's probable both these guys are going to be big leaguers who are above average and guys you can build around. If Biggio can also be that guy, that really adds some juice to this prospect. But right now, I think he's at a point where you definitely, at his age, you do want to see him hit at AAA. I mean, he's off to an amazing start. We'll see where that goes. Um, I think it's right now it's too early to say, oh, this guy is going to be a guy for us. But over the last year and the beginning of this year and what he's done in spring training, he's really put himself in the conversation of this guy could be a guy for us, which is something nobody was saying in 2017. Yeah, well, and he's grown into it. But also, here's another thing I want to throw out there. Don't forget, he's been hitting in front of or behind some pretty dang good players, which that creates a better opportunity for him as well, right? And so that's something that I think is really good, but also when you... You got to be careful because then if you're hitting in front of Vlad, you're probably going to get some more fastballs because they don't want to pitch to Vlad, right? Like there's little things that that he may have gotten while having the opportunity to have this guy around him, Vlad and, and Bo, um, which, again, I, you, wanna, you don't want to look into it as, as something that could hurt him when he comes up here. But I think it's a great thing in the sense of, when they come up here, they got to keep that going and have those guys hit around each other and grow around each other because they're going to all feed off of each other and continue to get better. Yeah, he's definitely, in terms of guys I'll be monitoring this season, I'm not sure if I'm a 100% believer until I see those big AAA stats, but heck, he's off to a good start. And I think he's someone, yeah, over the course of the year, you're definitely going to be checking those Buffalo box scores and he's going to be a person of interest. So... We're going to finish it off the way that we do in season two. And I guess, you know, back in the season 1.5 middle ground between the two seasons, which is a would you rather. Um, this, is, this one is a little bit, uh, you know, it's, a less, it's less scandalous maybe than some of the ones we've had. It's less gross, but I think it's a little bit of a head scratcher, a little bit of a thinker. So would you rather... Every song you ever listen to on Spotify and like how often you listen to, I don't know, Spotify, whatever app, yeah, you, whatever. Whatever, whatever you use, your music, everything you listen to in music is made public. So I guess maybe it's you tweeting it out or whatever it is, or every TV show and movie you watch on Netflix is made public. So the basic, I guess, premise is what is more embarrassing to you, like stupid music that you listen to or, or uh, like some of the TV shows and movies that you watch? Honestly... I would like the music thing just so that people can un can know my personality a little bit more because I don't think for me the movies I'm not a big movie guy or Netflix or TV show guy, um, so I think it, the music. But I I have fun. I don't care. I think those are things that I wouldn't ever be embarrassed any way. I'm kind of vanilla. What people would realize is like, okay, this guy is really not that he's uh, listening to top forty. Yeah, he's, he's just, been, he's this not, guy's got the radio on yeah, in the just, car. He's just not crazy. He's they're gonna be like, this guy's not crazy. But I'll, I'll drop it. You know, I'll drop it from in in my workouts. I listen to rap, hip hop, all that stuff, and then I'll listen to country when I'm driving, and then I'll even throw Andrea Bocelli in there. And so, I mean, there's some there's some things that you might not think that I'd ever listen to. Kansas. I'll throw a Canadian group Rush. I'll listen to Rush. Like I, I like a ton of different uh, genres of music, and I would never say that it'd be something that I was like, 
oh, I don't want them to see that I'm listening to Baby Shark. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't really care <laughs> oh, about man. it. Did but you see Elvis Andrus made that his walk-up yeah, song? Yeah, which I think is great. It's a good troll, but oh, God, imagine but, hearing that. Yeah, so I don't know. But I, in, as far and because of also, then if you were to watch my, my TV selections, I mean, I used to, when the season would get done, I'd go home and watch Planet Earth for like 10 days. Like I just... They got a new one now. Our Planet just came out like a couple of days ago on Netflix. Dude, I, lo- I love stuff David Attenborough's like voice. Oh, dude, oh, it's, it's unbelievable. So I'm in, I'm in on that stuff. Um, but I, would, I don't care. I'd, honestly, that one for me, I'd rather, I'd rather them have the music because it's more of what I do. But I'm not, opposed, I'm not embarrassed either way. What about you? I think I've watched some stuff on Netflix that in retrospect is just like pretty stupid like some some really stupid low-grade comedy stuff where it's like oh man like this guy's not intelligent so i would go with the music my my music is really like random like it's a lot of it's country and then it's rap and then it's like 70s funk and then it's like current african beats it's like absolutely all over the place but i don't think there's anything in there that i feel too because i think a lot of people do have music that they listen to and they feel pretty embarrassed about or like i'm not gonna what would be an embarrass embarrassing like tune I don't know, like if so. For I don't know. For instance, so if you to, listen to so like Celine Dion as a, as if, would that be like embarrassing? Well, if you listen to like let's say you had to tweet out the whole thing, and so you're like, here's what I listened to today, and then you tweet out that you listened to like not like a Celine Dion hit, but like the whole album from start to finish. Like I feel like you'd get yeah, people like, talking shit for that. Yeah. Like, it's like, oh wait, you and then you you scroll back to the first song, you listen to it again. Like there's, I don't know, Justin Bieber, I guess, I think he ended up being a little bit more respectable, but there's definitely a time when people are like, if you listen to Justin oh, yeah, Bieber, like Bieber. Like, you're an absolute chump. Or Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift. It's, it's funny, one of my university roommates, who is a very much a listener, so he's going to get a kick out of this, uh, he had a an ex-girlfriend, and they always used to listen to Taylor Swift together, so then he like had his current girlfriend, now his wife. Uh, and then she would say like no Taylor Swift in the house like when I'm around because like that was your thing with her I don't want to do it so then when the two of us were alone if we were gonna like drink yeah. before he would he would like play tons of Taylor Swift because he's like I can't get this at any other time like he I'm not big into Taylor Swift but I'm like I'll indulge you man if this is what you need so like, he's like that was his fix yeah his Taylor Swift yeah, his Taylor Swift fix as a friend did you say like hey uh, your man card pass it over here or uh, the thing, I've never been too judgmental about music. I feel like whatever, I don't know, whatever moves you, if whatever kind of gets you going, I'm not going to, just because, like I said, my whatever musical, floats your boat. Yeah, my musical palette is so weird that like how far be it from me to tell anyone else that theirs is. But yeah, I mean, there's some stuff out there you wouldn't want out there. But I think, yeah, my Netflix thing, especially because sometimes I'll just go on a kick where I watch like a lot of British or Australian shows. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. No one's watching. And I'm like, why did I just watch like a season and a half of a British sitcom about like an elementary school teacher that was like a six out of 10? Like, why did I sink 10 hours into this? But yeah, I think I think we're in agreement. Let the music, you know, I, w- I won't do it just because it would really troll people's uh, timelines, but I'm happy if anyone ever wants to like reach out to me and just ask me what song are you listening to right now, I'll always respond. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'll talk about music and all that stuff all day, but for me, I'm not embarrassed about any of them because I really am super vanilla, which is really not that fun, but uh, you'll see a lot of normal music and then as far as like I said, Planet Earth. You'll see some health food documentaries on my Netflix stuff. So 
I'm pretty, I'm pretty, nothing, nothing really too crazy for me. All right. Thanks everyone for listening. Uh, we appreciate you continuing to subscribe, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you find your podcasts. We appreciate your reviews as long as they're honest, good or bad. We'll, uh, we'll roll with the punches and we'll see you next time.